Pentecost means the 50th day. For it was 50 days after Passover that the Israelites found themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai in Arabia, waiting for Moses to bring them the commands of God. So why would God give the gift of the Holy Spirit on the day that traditionally the law was being celebrated? I thought the Spirit was about grace and the law was about works. Is that not right? What's the connection and how is it that this was a fulfillment of Israel's hope after thousands of years? Well, it's the final Pentecost, which we read in Acts chapter 2. It wasn't that more laws were given. Yay! You know, a third tablet. Uh, But rather, what was given is this. The ability and the delight to do them. That was given. That's what changed. Make no mistake, it was and it still is a celebration of the commands of God in Christ. And it's parallel to the events at Mount Sinai where a people came into existence in an instant and their hearts could finally say, honestly, we will do all that the Lord God has said. Isaiah marveled at this prospect in his day. Can a nation be born in a day, he said. Apparently, yes. With the Spirit, the very agent of creation itself, this is possible. Jeremiah describes it best in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Instead of a lifeless code on stone tablets, at Pentecost we got the teacher himself. Full-time, no summer vacations, no half days, Free of charge. Beat that deal. Remember, Paul said that the law is good. The law is good. That wasn't the problem. It's our hearts were bad. Under the old covenant, the heart was on trial. In the new covenant, Jesus changes that very part of the arrangement that condemned us, our hearts. He takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. We are now free to hear the commands from Jesus and serve him without the burden of fear. The Spirit himself delivers the commands of Jesus and also the heart to do them. Now we don't keep the law anymore. Paul says we fulfill it. Pentecost just wasn't a celebration of the receiving of the law. It was also coordinated to coincide with the wheat harvest celebration. Over the millennia, the connection between God's law and bread became almost synonymous to the Israelite community. Jesus spoke like this a lot. See if you recognize this. When the disciples asked him, what do you want to eat? He says, I have bread you don't know of. What does he say? For my food is to do the will of the Father. He freely relates the will of God in this picture of bread. This is Pentecost language. Believe it or not. The spirit given at Pentecost is also described as water, having cleansing and refreshing activities. The spirit is most often described as water, and sometimes fire even. Supplied with both bread, the commands of Christ, and water, the power and the will to obey them, the people of God can endure and even thrive in the true wilderness, the wilderness of this age. 
Like Israel in the wilderness before us, fed by the manna from heaven and the water from the rock, we now find ourselves in that eschatological wilderness with Jesus and the Spirit to nourish us. Hebrews says that Jesus himself is the true rock from which the water sprang and the true manna that came down from heaven. Listen how Jesus himself describes the Spirit's job to the disciples in John chapter 16. He says this, Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people don't believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. Amen? All that belongs to the Father is mine. So John writes this. All that Jesus has is disclosed to us by the Spirit. Well, what is it that Jesus has, right? A kingdom and a throne. He has that. Matthew 28, Jesus says this, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. I have the throne. I have the kingdom. So the Spirit has been sent to execute Jesus' kingdom on earth in this time. Is it any surprise that his function is so closely tied to law, to righteousness and judgment? We must be very careful not to think of the Spirit's ministry as something other than kingdom work. Remember, Jesus began his ministry preaching this, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus hadn't died or resurrected, so what was the content of the gospel? What was he asking people to believe? The gospel in Jesus' lips was this, simple. The reign of heaven has come to earth. The reign of heaven has come to earth. Is his death and resurrection good news too? Yes. Yes, it is. But that came later. The good news just kept on coming. So I want you to hear me on this, about the kingdom. The gospel, the word the gospel, is primarily about heaven's reign coming to earth to exact judgment on the prince of this world. Did you get that? The primary definition of the gospel in Jesus' mouth is to describe the kingdom of God coming to earth to exact judgment on his enemy, the devil. Your enemy too. That's good news. Secondarily, it is about our privilege to be able to join that kingdom which only became possible after Jesus' death and resurrection. Two pieces of great news. But here's what can happen. If we reverse that order, we will emphasize personal salvation to the exclusion of the kingdom elements of the gospel that Jesus preached. And so much of the New Testament won't make any sense to you if you think that way. For example, Paul gives us some implications of the kingdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
He says this about Jesus, perhaps surprising to many of you. Jesus must destroy every rule and every authority and every power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Then the end will come when he delivers the kingdom to the Father. Job complete. You see, Jesus ascended to his throne in heaven because it is from there that he will subdue the earth and bring it in line with heaven. He is doing what Adam and Eve failed to do, you see? Subdue the earth. On one hand, Jesus subdues the thrones of this world, the powers, the authorities. Even those of us who are believers were first conquered by him, right? Paul says that we're captives. But instead of being dragged by a hook in our nose at the back of Jesus' victory parade, we find, as Paul says, that he shares his spoils with us. But we're no less captives, defeated by him. Jesus also fulfills Adam and Eve's other commission. Fill the earth. Fill it. He creates a people prepared to inhabit his kingdom. And this is what begins at Pentecost. A creation of a people in an instant to be the inheritors of the age to come. How does he do this? Scripture says he pours out the Spirit from heaven. Remember the language from Joel 2 in Acts chapter 2, which we've read the past weeks? In those days I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, the least to the greatest. Peter says, Jesus is now exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he has poured out and which you see here today. This pouring is depicted as a river from heaven. River. Just like a river flowed out of Eden and watered the garden in Genesis, so now a river flows from the throne of Christ and waters the church on earth. As Jesus is the physical link between heaven and earth, the Spirit is the messenger between the two, quite literally bringing bits of heaven to earth. Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to John in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the main street of the city. On either side of the river stood a tree of life, producing 12 kinds of fruit, and yielding a fresh crop for each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Ezekiel, the prophet in the Old Testament, describes this same river as growing in depth and intensity eventually flowing to the ocean, making the, the salt seas fresh. Great picture. Great picture. So Jesus is bringing a kingdom, and the Spirit is administering it here in this time. So any kingdom has three elements, right? A people, a law, and a land. A people, a law, and a land. First, the people. Just like at Mount Sinai, there was a group at Pentecost, Starting with the 12 disciples, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, Luke says that daily people were added to the church's number. Added, by the way. <laughs> you didn't just become a Christian, you exist on your own. You were always added <laughs> to a number that already existed. Added, not standing alone. Every single baptized Christian became part of the physical and local church. There's no such thing in Scripture as a Lone Ranger Christian. Just me and Jesus and the radio or my Bible. 
We sometimes make that mistake, as Eric said last week, of confusing the Trinity. We leave the Holy Spirit out, and the Trinity becomes Father, Son, Holy Bible. And because of that, we don't participate in the life of the Spirit, which is in the Church of God. Think about it. You didn't baptize yourself, did you? You had to come to somebody. And they affirmed your profession, and they accepted you. But sometimes we think we can live the rest of our Christian life independently. As long as I just have my Bible on a retreat. Weird. Even though we experience salvation first individually, and we do, it is the corporate salvation that is God's priority. In the end, it will be said the church is saved. (laughs) Right? She will be saved. Not just you or me, she. You know, we've heard a lot about Muhammad Ali this week, and we've heard many of his quotes that were both flamboyant and profound. And one in particular said to me, I was was thinking about this message, this point in particular. When he was still Cassius Clay, a young prize fighter, he was flying to his next fight, and uh, the flight attendant came over to him and said, "Uh, Sir, Mr. Clay, you'll have to uh, buckle your seatbelt for takeoff and for landing. He says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which he politely leaned over, buckled his seatbelt, and said, Superman, don't need no plane, neither. (laughs) We, too, need a reality check. We are not independent from the church that the Spirit is building. Superman might not need a plane, but we do. And we need a seatbelt as well. Secondly, a kingdom has a law. We addressed this a little bit already. It's pretty straightforward. Think of the Lord's Prayer. We pray it all the time, right? Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. Right? We're asking for that to be the case. I want it to be on earth like it is in heaven. Provide us the resources, please. At Pentecost, that became possible where that prayer didn't just go to God, and God goes, I'll answer that one day. Now we pray it, and Jesus says, Holy Spirit, flows like a river right to us. We get resourced, we're refreshed, renewed. People come to life, they become part of the family of God. We should take very seriously the Lord's Prayer now, because we can now fulfill it, the power of the Spirit. And as I said before, the church doesn't just keep laws. The law is written on our hearts. Our work in the Spirit fulfills the law of Christ, Paul says. We're not just keepers of the law, plotting day in, day out, keeping some code. It is written on your hearts. You can't tell the difference between the law and your your intentions now. You see? They They blend. The things you desire now blend with the exact commands of Christ. You have to really think to distinguish them now. And we do have to do that, but it should be natural. It's it's our new language now. It's our native tongue, love. So what does the Spirit expect to happen with this new people in this new law, the law of Christ, as Paul calls it? Discipleship is the main thing, discipleship. Remember how the Spirit in John delivers and reminds us of all Jesus' commands? We read John 16. Remember Jesus' last command in the body on earth? This is his last command, Matthew chapter 28. 
Make disciples. How do you do it? You do it by baptizing them and teaching them all I have commanded. Discipleship means different things to different people. Right? There's so many books written about it. I'm so, what does it even mean? To some, it's merely Bible study. When we get together, we study in a group. To others, it's some kind of accountability group, perhaps, where we lie about how things are going and everyone nods at us. Right? Maybe you've been part of those groups. I know I have. But discipleship, scripturally speaking, should be mentorship, where we learn how to live Christians might be born again, but disciples have to be made. Discipleship requires two things. I'm going to give you two Greek words. Orthodoxy and orthopraxis. I'll explain what those mean. Orthodoxy means right thinking. Ortho meaning correct. Dox meaning a statement or profession. Right thinking. Orthopraxis means correct practice. Correct living. In our tradition, we emphasize orthodoxy an awful lot. Matters a ton. But what happens is we sometimes just live as we please because we got it all together. Our thoughts are right. Discipleship in many churches has been reduced to studying doctrine together. Trust me, it's possible to study doctrine too much. Maybe you've experienced this. It's too much. Whenever you accumulate knowledge and you never live out the implications of it, it's too much. Like the Israelites eating quail, it's possible to have too much of a good thing. It's like having quail coming out your nostrils. It's God's good provision, but it's overkill, and it's our fault. Discipleship is meant to be mentorship, or better, apprenticeship under the direction of a master. The twelve lived three years with Jesus, studying his every move. We know them as the disciples. Discipline is the root word there. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone came to me and introduced themselves as the master, I'd probably run. Senpai. But the Bible does say, right, imitate those who are mature. Paul says, do as I do, as I follow Christ. Right? Older women teach younger women. So the principle is clearly there. The church is meant to be a formative group with shared disciplines and practices. The bishops of the early church worked tirelessly, writing letters back and forth to make sure all the churches everywhere were aligned, not just in doctrine, but also in their values and their lifestyle as a testimony to the world that the kingdom of God has come. Paul bemoaned the fact in his churches that they had too many teachers and not enough fathers. A teacher can stay remote. I'd love to meet you after the service, but just a few of you, right? A father is a hands-on, do-as-I-do job. Right, dads? And because of that, and the Spirit is interested in that, you can imagine Jesus, our commander, telling the Spirit, our sergeant, get the troops ready. Get them up. 
Prepare them. Squad goals. The church is serious business. In Acts chapter 5, you're going to find out real soon that it is. You'll hear the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Luke says this. After they died before the presence of the Spirit of God in the church, that no one else dared join the church, even though they were highly regarded by the people. They kept their distance in Solomon's colonnade and just kind of listened in. What are they about? But no one dared join them if they weren't serious. How readily would you join a group where your secret sins might just kill you? Mmm, yikes. Church is meant to be a formative group, quite serious and quite disciplined, you know? And there's, I just want to mention two things. Historically, the church has been known for really two defining practices. This is a great place to start. Let's get these right, okay? One, communion. Simple. In the Didache, which is one of the earliest Christian discipleship manuals ever written, recently discovered, Instructions are given for communion. They tell you exactly what it means. He says, we are the bread scattered on the mountains, now forming one loaf. We are meant to come together as a discipline. It's formative. In fact, the Lord commands it. He says, do this. (laughs) That's a command, right? It's an imperative. Do this in remembrance of me. Anyone else here besides Tim have a short memory? Listen, we all do, especially when it comes to these matters. And Jesus says, do it often, lest you forget. Often, as often as you do this, not as seldom as you do this, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This is a discipline which we should do together and do it often and do it right. It will edify you. It's meant to. It's a gift of the Spirit. The Spirit pr- promises to inhabit our gatherings when we seek to honor Christ, because that's, that's what his intention is to do, too. He wants to honor Christ, and when you want to honor Christ, man, he will strongly support you, like it says in Second Chronicles. The eyes of the Lord, they scour the earth looking for someone whose hearts are fully his, that he might strongly support them. Communion. But, you know, communion is also a rehearsal. It's practice for something else. For a more significant meal to come, the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's a rehearsal dinner. It matters that we get it right. Secondly, important practice of the church, the Lord's Day gathering. Here we are. This has defined the church from the beginning. It is designed to celebrate Jesus' resurrection, which occurred on the first day of the week. Simple. They call it the Lord's Day, the day he conquered and overcame. Each Sunday, the early church fathers said this, we act out the collective drama of God's people being called out of the world. The picture is vivid. The world watches us go to worship while they go about their business as usual. In fact, the word church In the Bible, many of you know, the word ecclesia means those called out to assemble. Called out to assemble. That's what the word church means. So you can't go to the church on the radio, right? You can't go to church online. You see, it doesn't work. The word doesn't mean anything. Now, 
If we knew Greek, we might have a clearer sense of how that doesn't work, but I'm telling you, it doesn't work. It might help you, but it's not church. Okay, let's not call it that. The patristic writers, like I said, saw the Lord's Day assembly as a dress rehearsal for Christ's return when he calls us to assemble around him. You know the picture? Jesus comes back. Trumpets blow. Shouts from the archangels. Jesus appears. He calls his people to himself. He gathers them. If you exclude yourself as a practice, and that practice becomes a habit, what do you think will happen when Jesus comes in person to assemble you? If you can't do it now. If you don't recognize the shepherd's voice now, do you think you will recognize the shepherd's voice on that day? The sleep may still be in your eyes, as Jesus warns, and you will be in danger of missing the boat. And the Lord will close the door of the ark, and you'll be on the outside yelling, Lord, Lord. Along with all the others who took no heed of his commands or his disciplines in this life. You will rush to the wedding with an invitation in hand, without wedding clothes, and you will be turned away. These are not my words, frightfully. They're Jesus' words. What else? What are we modeling for our children, for the kids? Are we discipling them as we're supposed to? Are we mentoring them to seek first the kingdom of God? Are we giving them every opportunity to be present when the Spirit promises a minister for the salvation of their souls? I think the adage is true. What parents allow in moderation, children will excuse in excess. What parents allow in moderation, children will excuse in excess. Your children are watching you. They're watching us, adults, all you adults to see what you do. Do you seek first the kingdom of God? They're gonna learn from us. Look, this community, one way or the other, is gonna disciple something into the kids. It's gonna happen. What do we want that to be? What do we want our legacy to be? Thirdly, a kingdom has a land, doesn't it? It's very clear from scripture that the Spirit, when it comes into our lives, now makes us registered citizens of heaven. <laughs> That's pretty good. A lot of you voted this week because you were citizens. There's certain privileges that come with citizenship. But because we're citizens of heaven, Scripture says, we're also strangers and travelers, sojourners here. But we also know this. This earth, even though it's not our place now, is our inheritance. And it will be ours when heaven, our home, is revealed with Jesus. When heaven and earth come back together, this inheritance will be ours. You will inherit the earth. Doesn't Jesus say that? Meek will inherit the earth. In the time being, the church is an outpost of heaven. It's a colony, if you, if you will. Or better, a beachhead, which Jesus has established. So do we have a peacetime or a wartime mentality? We just go along playing games while the world perishes and the church falters. 
The Spirit wants all those things to be in place. A people, a law, and the hope of the land. You should carry that within you at all times. The book of 1 Peter is great. He covers all the stuff I just said. It's about hope for these reasons. So let me end with this thought. That Scripture is clear in relation to the Holy Spirit's ministry. That the church is the bride. We've heard that before. She's the new Eve, if you follow me. She's the partner and the suitable helper for Jesus. As Adam's side was opened and Eve was given life, so too Jesus' side was opened, which a flow of water sprang forth from. His obedient life, death, and resurrection earned his right to be given a bride who was brought forth from the life-giving Spirit of God. And just like the first Adam, the new Adam, Jesus, now has a bride, a partner to join him in his work, to fill, subdue, to rule, reign, and judge. The church is described as betrothed to Jesus as he sends gifts to his fiancée from heaven. White clothes, which are the deeds of the saints. Clean water for her washing. All to prepare her for her work and for his arrival. So what is our mission in this time while the groom is making preparations? It is none other than the total renewal of creation. The first part of creation that we are working on is, I'm going to call phase one. Phase one in the renewal of creation is the renewal of humanity first, before anything else. And this is done through the gospel and evangelism. Every heart that is changed creates a worshiper of God. Only worshipers may inherit the age to come. As John Piper said, evangelism exists because worship does not. Phase one also includes our faithful presence here in this time. Living out, training, and practicing in justice, righteousness, and peace. All the values of heaven. Our land. This is why we plant churches. Little outposts of heaven to prepare a people appropriate to inherit the new earth. When Jesus brings all of heaven with him and makes his dwelling with us forever. Jesus has given a little piece of creation to us right now to practice on ourselves. He's given us the resources to work on it, the Spirit of God. And when he comes, we will be delighted to receive the delegated rule to order the new earth. Paul says, get good at it now, because in the age to, in the age to come, it's going to get real. It's going to get real. Phase two commences when Jesus returns. The natural order will be released from its current frustration. And in those days, according to Isaiah in chapter 11, he says this, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? They are the sea. Meaning it's total and it's absolute, complete. The glory of the Lord will be everywhere at all times. In the meantime, however, Paul says in this time in Romans 6 that creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God. It's waiting. It's waiting. 
And inasmuch as you live life in the Spirit now, creation reaches out for you to do your bidding. Those thorns and the thistles, even in this time, when a Christian walks by, they cringe. They retract. Think about that. They know when we walk by, the curse will end. That groaning is the groaning of a mother in childbirth, by the way. It's not like, ugh. It's like labor pains, Paul says. It's like good groaning. And with great relief, I think, and great exultation on that day, we will hear the, G- the words of Jesus when he comes back, which ring in our ears now from the book of Revelation. He says this, Behold, I make all things new. All things new. That's good news. And that can start now a little bit. Things have come up new a little bit now. Fully later. Because of the Spirit. If this is the mission of the Holy Spirit, to do all of this we just talked about, what kind of people ought we to be? What kind of church ought we to be? We are made for big thoughts. So let's think big. For we know the time is short and the stakes are high. So hear these words of Jesus. Revelation Revelation chapter 21. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root, and I am the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who thirsts come and drink freely from the water of life. The Spirit says, come. And the bride says, come. So say we all. Amen.